Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 13. For today, you might also be ready to turn to Matthew 24, which is the parallel passage. The point of our passage today at the end of Mark 13 is very direct and it's very simple. It is, be ready for Christ's return. In fact, this message is easy to see just in the imperatives the commands that we see in Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. There we read these commands. Be on guard, keep awake, stay awake, and stay awake again. Now we've already seen in this chapter how Jesus makes the most of the tension between what his disciples are supposed to know about his second coming that he actually tells them, and the fact that no one knows exactly when his coming will actually occur. Last week, last week, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, whenever that was, that's what happens when you go to Southern California and it's 92 degrees. We saw last time we were in Mark... On the one hand, the disciples were supposed to know that when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. That's what Jesus said. These things there are all the terrible things that characterize the whole period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. There will be false messiahs, wars and rumors of wars, Famines and earthquakes, tribulation, apostasy, and even death of believers for Jesus' sake. Seeing these things, we should know that Christ's return is near. It could be at any moment. Did you catch that? Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's saying, from now until I come back, This is what is going to characterize the whole church age. That's what they're supposed to know. Therefore, that's what we're supposed to know. But today, we'll see that on the other hand, Jesus is saying, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Verse 32. So what does this tell us? Well, it tells us at least three things. That the return of Christ to gather his elect and judge the world is still future. That we do not know when this will happen. Therefore, we must stay awake and be ready. In other words, nothing the disciples saw or will see, is a sure sign of the end, for the end will come without warning. The hour will remain unknown until it arrives, and then no one can do anything about it. Does everybody feel the tension there? There are certain things that we're supposed to know about why we're still here. 
And that is basically it's a mess and there'll be much tribulation. And then for those who like to try to find the exact time or date because this happened, this has got to happen now, what does Jesus say? You don't know exactly when it's going to happen. No one does. If you're able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 37. Mark 13, starting at 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 24? We're going to look at verses 36 through 51. And what this is, it's an expanded version of what Jesus said that we just read in Mark. Mark 24, beginning at verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood... There were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. And that place there will be weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. Both accounts start off exactly the same way. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. Now do you think these writers and Jesus' disciples got Jesus' foundational truth about his second coming? That no one knows, so keep awake and be ready for me to return whenever it may be? Yeah, they finally did, but it wasn't immediately. It took a while. Matthew gives more details than Mark, as you noticed in this section. Including in the first example, both include Jesus' parable of the master who went on a journey. That story is the last in in both of these chapters. Probably because, why? probably because it more directly pictures what Jesus is getting across to his disciples. It's the only example that Mark gives, but the last of several in Matthew's account. So let's go through all the examples Matthew records so we can get the full effect and the implications of what Jesus is teaching about his second coming. In Matthew's account, there are four stories that he records. And the point is, be ready for my return. Be ready for my return. First, in Matthew 24, the first couple of verses, verse 37 through 39 of the section we read, you notice the phrase, as were the days of Noah. This is an historical reference to the days of Noah. Notice the suddenness that's emphasized here. The suddenness of the flood caught those who were not prepared. And those who were unprepared were unconcerned. They continued to live as they had always lived. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving giving in marriage. So we might have a question. Is there anything wrong with these activities of life? No. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But that's the point. When the soul becomes entirely wrapped up in the activities of life, so that these matters become all that matters. And spiritual concerns are therefore neglected. The normal activities of life become something else besides blessings. They're no longer blessings, but become burdensome curses. They become evidences of gross materialism, of false security, and often a very, very cold selfishness. In other words, being totally concerned with with and consumed by the normal activities of life makes a person unconcerned about the most important thing in life, which is what? 
whether they know their creator or not. Now, there's something else to notice in this story of Noah and the flood, and that is that Noah and the flood point to a world that will be largely unbelieving at the time of Christ's return. And what does that mean for the believer? Not that we should become or have an excuse to become cynical and pessimistic. And that is a great danger for every single one of us because things just aren't like they used to be. And we need to help each other with this. Instead, we should endure with a faithful adherence to the word and the preaching of the word in spite of the fact that there will be widespread, entrenched unbelief despite incredible efforts to share, witness, and proclaim the gospel. Because the actual conversion is in whose hands? It's in God's hands. It's our job to be faithful and trust him through all of this. In fact, Paul writes about this often, and he wrote to his protege, Timothy, this in 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ, first answer the question, is that you? It should be. Will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then is the verses that usually we go straight to. We don't like these verses before. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. J.C. Ryle wrote, The world will not be converted when Christ returns. And millions of professing Christians will be found thoughtless, unbelieving, godless, Christless, worldly, and unfit to meet their judge. Let me read that again. Notice the words. Pay attention. The world will not be converted when Christ returns. And millions of professing Christians will be found thoughtless, unbelieving, godless, Christless, worldly, and unfit to meet their judge. Second story here in Matthew's account is in verses 40 through 42, and it's about sudden separation. The best way to understand the world, the word taken in Matthew 24, verse 40, is most likely the way Jesus described gathering his elect from the far reaches of the earth. In verse 31 of Matthew, right before this, and in Mark, verse 27. Let that sink in. 
Jesus doesn't explain how this will happen, and certainly not when, but the point is that once the day of Jesus' coming comes, every opportunity still to be saved is gone forever. And you know what I'm leaving out. This is not a picture of a pre-second coming rapture. The word does not mean this. This is how Jesus describes his second coming. He's coming. When he comes, it's over. Even people who are intimately associated in family or in work, etc., will be separated by that unexpected coming. Calling, or in our day, messaging your friend, will not save them if they haven't already truly believed. No one will be saved simply by being close to or even related to another person who is a Christian. You must believe on Jesus, and you must be ready. That's why Jesus says in verse 42 here in Matthew, Therefore, what? Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The third story in this section is the need to stay awake by watching, verses 43 and 44. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. In other words... Constant vigilance is required. Now, the comparison of the Lord's coming with that of a thief is also found in four other New Testament passages. And we're going to look real quick at those. Every one emphasizes the suddenness and the unpredictability of Jesus' coming. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 and 3, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3, we read, For you yourselves are fully aware. Are we? Are we? That the day of the Lord, referring to the day of the Lord, will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and and they will not escape. In other words, unpreparedness is inexcusable for the true believer. In 2 Peter 3.10, Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Jesus' coming is a fulfillment of a promise. Jesus' coming 
will result in a catastrophic change. Jesus' coming should be an incentive for sanctified living. Peter's eschatology is really simple. Mankind up to Noah, world's in terrible shape, flood. Recycle, Christ comes, saves his own fire. Sin, flood, sin, fire. In Revelation 3, verse 3, remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And Revelation 16, 15 is the last one. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Both Revelation passages emphasize that for those who have not repented and believed, the sudden arrival of Christ is a source of pure terror. But for those who are believing and vigilant, His coming is exactly the opposite. His coming is a reason for joy. The fourth story or point of this account in Matthew is the need to be ready. And Jesus' fourth picture here is a contrast between two servants. And he uses this contrast to give an explanation about what being ready means. In other words, this is applying the truth to our day-to-day life. What does it mean to be ready? And he does this by giving us first the faithful and wise servant in Matthew 24, 45 through 47. Now, we agree on the the main point here being ready means loving trusting and waiting for Jesus of course but being faithful is also pictured here as faithfully serving continuing to carry out what Jesus has left us to do in this world all of Jesus' disciples are called to serve him And to serve the body of Christ. The particular ways to serve have some things in common. But there are particular differences as well. Are there not? In how we do that. Here in this example. Look at it. Serving food to the master's household at the proper time. Is the picture here of the faithful servant. And this is what's specifically mentioned. Doing the will of the master and caring for those in need, whether the need is spiritual, material, or both, is the task of all true believers. 
But notice, it's especially believers serving and caring for other believers to those who are a part of the master's household. That should be the shining example to the whole rest of the world that has no foundation for this other than to make themselves feel better about helping somebody. Our purpose is so much higher. It's so much more important. The blessings that we read about here in verse 46, given to the faithful and wise servant, tell us a lot. It means that the servant is the object of his master's special favor and a delight to his master. We adore him so much. We count him worthy so much that serving him, serving other believers in Christ, and serving our neighbors, the other people who are suffering, who have not heard about him, etc., etc., gives our master great delight. That's our call. It's really pretty simple when you break it down as Jesus has done. The proper attitude for the one who waits for the master's return is then what? Building my own kingdom? Or is it active service, especially on behalf of those in the master's household? This active service then is not the shaken alarm of the Thessalonians that we read about in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2. Listen how Paul had to speak to these, this church. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, it's our subject, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a broken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Do you understand what happened there? Some false teachers, prophets, and other more excited people than is normal have said, Jesus already came back. He's just come. And Paul is writing to these people and saying what? Don't be alarmed. Don't get so easily influenced. You will know when the Lord comes. We covered that in the weeks before. Every eye on the face of the earth will see him return. There will be no doubt. Also, active service is not the nauseating lukewarmness of the church at Laodicea that we read about in Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. I think, personally, that's one of the sharpest and the most blunt rebukes in the Bible. And it's written to a church because the people are neither hot nor cold. They're just stuck in the middle, lukewarm, thinking they're fine. How or where else does Jesus say that, no, 
I will spit you out of my mouth if you don't repent and return to your first love. Other things became more important than worshiping and knowing him. So what is active service? Instead of all the wrong service or the reactions that we just talked about, it's the faithfulness that's illustrated by the persecuted Smyrna church in Revelation 2 verse 10. Be faithful unto death. It's that simple of of a command. When we review what's going on, as we will tonight, and what God has done, the list is extraordinarily God-centered and powered. And every one of you know that. If you just think what has happened in the last year in people's lives and the responses to God's work and his faithfulness, it has been incredibly encouraging, even in moments of greatest despair. True? That's an indication of serving with the Lord's will in mind for him and not for our own self-satisfaction. And in verse 47 here, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And we shouldn't get carried away with that and try to figure out how, when, why, and what portion is mine. That's kind of the wrong attitude approach to approach a blessed <laughs> promise. Just know he knows. We give our kids incredible gifts to let them know how much we love and love them and are interested in them. But we all know that little children, their greatest gift is a smile from a parent. And you've seen it, and you know how special that is. To see our Lord rejoice in his work through his people will be the greatest blessing that we can possibly imagine. In fact, we can't even hardly imagine it. And I want to say something else before we get to the wicked servant in the last part of this passage. Our problem is in looking for the return of the Lord is really pretty simple. We are so busy doing everything imaginable just to live, putting up with this, achieving our goals, believing the malarkey that everyone in the world can achieve their dream that we lose sight of how to trust God in the middle of all this. And it's really not hard to explain. If you're walking with Jesus and you're in the middle of a World War III office situation, then you are his instrument in the middle of that war. And your conversation goes on all the way through it. Not after you've already destroyed the place or before when you're so worried you can't sleep. Through it, is he with you? Yes. Is he faithful? 
Yes. Does he care? Yes. Walking is a perfect example. It's not a run. It's not a marathon. It's not an endurance race. It's not a sprint. It's walking. When you're walking, you have time to converse with someone. And none of us are too busy or in such a situation where you can't continually have a conversation with your God Almighty because you are in His Son through it. And if you can't think of the words to say, what does Scripture say? The Holy Spirit intercedes for you. Even if it's help. Even if it's not even help. He gets it. The point is that you are connected So live like it. Live like it. All of us live like it. That's a faithful servant. In order to do that, you've got to trust the one that you're talking to. You've got to be committed to him in the first place, or you're not going to want to talk to him. You'll be unconcerned like the people in the first of this passage. Just go on with life. I'll go do this spiritual thing every once in a while. And then I just, I go to the, you know, the five-minute service on Friday night so I can do the re- everything else I want to do the rest of the weekend. That's what it's become in many places. Something to check off. Better not be checking off with us. What did David say? Oh, that I could be in your courts again. This is a time we rejoice with other people that we're related to in Jesus Christ. It's not some gathering where we check something off and get merit, get points, get a sticker to put on our adult refrigerator. It's serious. And in that bond is when we see how faithful to Christ he is. By the way, that's basically what one person who is an integral part of our church, grew up here and he's now in college, told me this last week. He's learning this in new ways. Walking through tough classes, social situations that he was never comfortable in. And all of a sudden things changed. Depending on Christ in those situations and seeing up front and personal, the faithfulness of the Lord that he loves and serves. Simple declaration, simple messages. Most of us take way too long learning. Walk with your God. Walk. He's there. He wants to be the integral part. Now compare that with this wicked servant here in verses 48 through 51. First, we need to note this person has to be an unbeliever. Although he certainly may profess to be a believer. In verses 48 through 51, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is serious. Jesus pictures this person as displaying three particular vices here. Do you see them listed? That sum up the attitude and the state of his sinful heart. What's the first one? It's carelessness. His attitude is, my master is delayed, so he didn't do what he's supposed to do. He doesn't care. He doesn't realize that the master can come any second. And how many of us have seen firsthand the terribly messed up lives of people who basically say, well, right now I'd like to have a good time, but I'll get serious about God later. I hope that's not you. You're not guaranteed a later. Teenagers say it. Then as young adults, they say it. Then when they think they found the right person, they say it. Then maybe a child comes along and they say they'll take them to church later. Then in middle age, they're still saying it. Have you ever seen anybody on their deathbed that are still saying it? It's nothing more horrible. 2 Peter 3, 3-7, through 7, Peter writes, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. I mentioned this passage a few minutes ago. But by the same word... The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Leave it to Peter to be blunt. The second particular vice mentioned is cruelty. So first there was carelessness, and then we see cruelty. We read that this servant begins to beat his fellow servants in Matthew 24, verse 49. Now, far four weeks ago, when we were in the signs of the end of the age section of Mark 13, Jesus warned that one of the signs would be his followers being beaten even in places of worship. True believers all through church history have many times been pursued and persecuted and beaten and even killed. Here, it's not just the apostles and future missionaries who are beaten. It's the underservants. And the one doing the beating is a person who claims to be a what? A servant of the Lord. Have you ever seen that? 
maybe not physically, but in many other ways, yes, and it's horrible. The third particular vice is a word that we don't hear much anymore. It's carousing. It's glorified today. Eats and drinks with drunkards, verse 49, too. This wicked servant, and here is the key, if we could just get this. The wicked servant is behaving like the rest of the world. We need to examine ourselves about this. If there is one word that describes the attitude of seeking pleasure in this world, this is it, carousing. And even, even though I can't honestly remember the last time I actually heard it used. Can you? I heard it a lot growing up. There obviously should be a marked difference between those that are Christ's servants and those who are not. The question is, is there? Can people tell by your lifestyle, by what you do, by what you say, and how you do what you do and say it? Can people tell by your lifestyle when you're out amongst whoever that you belong to another To the Lord? When we gather together, which servant do we look like? On the positive side of that coin, it's one of the most incredibly encouraging blessings I've had in my life, which is getting pretty long on the end now to be around you folks because the conversations you have are filled with joy of life of the of the neat things you like to do and most of the time it's all related to what God has made you and what God is doing and how can we do this together or figure this out there's nothing sweeter than that So what does Jesus say will happen to this wicked servant? The master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him and an hour he doesn't know, cut him in pieces, put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now we've got to be sure we understand who this wicked servant is. Again, this is a person who says that they are a servant of Christ, but who really isn't. This is someone who professes they are a Christian, but who really never has truly believed. There's just no evidence. One way Jesus speaks to this condition is right here in this text. Notice that Jesus does not say the wicked servant is cut off from anything. You notice that? Which would be a Hebrew way of discipline. The Hebrew was unclean. What happened? Cut off from. Instead, Jesus says he will cut the wicked servant in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. Where? 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's an important distinction. William Hendrickson describes it this way when he says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping conveys inconsolable, never-ending wretchedness and utter everlasting hopelessness. You might have some more adjectives and adverbs there, but that, that was enough for me. Gnashing of teeth denotes excruciating pain and frenzied anger. There's a, an old fable in which three apprentice devils were talking to Satan. The first one said, I will tell people there is no God. Satan said, That will not fool many because they know in their hearts there is a God. Romans 1, in case you're interested. The second devil said, I'll tell them there's no hell. Satan said, You'll never fool many that way either because they know there's a hell. The third said, I'll tell people there is no hurry. Satan said, go for it. You'll ruin millions. So again, I'll ask, even as Jesus did over and over in these chapters, are you ready for his return? Are you watching To be ready when Jesus returns means salvation. Not to be ready is to perish. It means that you don't really care, and not really caring about knowing Jesus means that you don't really know him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for one of the most enlightening, powerful chapters in the Bible. Thank you that it's not just in one place. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all all have recorded this part of Jesus' teaching and his response to the disciples' question, which all started because they looked at their temple in the in the grounds on the Temple Mount and just thought they were so glorious. They thought that they were indestructible. They thought they were too. And in response, when Jesus said that there wouldn't be one stone left upon another, these guys were so blown out of their minds by that truth so disturbed that they asked Jesus those three questions, which he answered. Thank you that his words explain so much of the other passages in Scripture about when he returns, that his return is a promise 
It's spoken about many, many places. And that we both need to be ready, knowing that he will return at any moment. But we don't know exactly the moment. And we know that you know that's best for us. It literally helps, keeps us on our toes. It keeps us looking to you. It keeps us in a state of remembering what you've done for us and what you've called us to do. And how many folks still need to hear the proclamation of the gospel. And they need to see us living in dependence and faithfulness to you. Oh God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts through these words. Show us what's really important. Help us prioritize our lives around you and your calling for us and how we can depend on you and how we need you every minute of every day. And we thank you for our walk that you give us, that you're with us, and that we can count on the only thing that's a sure hope in this world, and that is your son, his person and his work, and his future return. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. You're dismissed.